Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. At least 200,000 people missed out on essential surgery as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, with many enduring misery and daily pain as a result. And both scheduled and emergency surgery levels dropped by 20% during the pandemic, suggesting that there is now a significant pent-up demand uh, for treatment, according to the National Clinical Lead in Surgery, Professor Deborah McNamara. And what I find unusual about this is that Paul Reid has given out about it, because the HSC Chief Paul Reid has admitted the long waiting list for hospital services are unacceptable in evidence uh, about the HSE's National Service Plan. And to be honest with you, I find it bizarre that Paul Reid is giving out about it, saying it's unacceptable, and yet he is the CEO, he's the man in charge, he's ultimately responsible. When we have roughly whatever it is, a million people in this country waiting for an appointment currently at the moment, he's the man responsible for these lengthy waiting lists. And yet he's still the CEO. If that was any other company, could you imagine, for example, the CEO of Ireland's Classic Hits going on the television or the radio or the newspapers and saying, Ireland's Classic Hits doesn't have enough listeners. We need to do more. Should he be fired? And they'd just get another CEO because that's his job. So why would he complain about himself? I find it bizarre for a man that's on such a large salary, which is paid for by you, the taxpayer. Every year he's on nearly a half a million quid. And yet, you know, he turns around and says that it's unacceptable. Of course it's unacceptable. Well, then do something about it. That's your fault. That's your job. Do something about it. Well, on that note, we did, and we have had a lot of emails from people in the past, and one I did want to get to, and I'm going to get to in a second. With a lot of emails uh, over the last year, certainly, by people who are awaiting serious treatments for serious diagnoses. And I find it really upsetting that we have a two-tier system in this country. If you are diagnosed with something and you want to get seen immediately, if you're VHI or Irish Life or whatever uh, private health insurance you have, you will get seen very quickly because you have private health insurance. If not, you could be waiting a long time. And we forget that there are human beings at the end of us. And one such human being is Stephanie, who contacted us. And really, I suppose it'd be better for Stephanie to explain it herself rather than me read out the email. Uh, Stephanie, good afternoon to you. Hi, how are things? Stephanie, firstly, can I say condolences on the loss of your dad? I know he passed away in February from cancer, so I'm very sorry to hear that. And my condolences to you and your family. And I'm sure there's an old cliche that time is a great healer, but, you know, there's been a very short amount of time has passed and now you have your own personal worries. But maybe take me back a little bit as to how this all started for you and when you felt that there was something wrong in the first place and why you felt there was something wrong. Um, I suppose it's probably... Over a year ago, maybe two, I was getting pains in my throat, um, just kind of like a sore gland. Mm-hmm. And it was there kind of under my ear. And I was going to the doctor and they were saying that they couldn't feel anything, which was okay because they couldn't feel anything. Um, but it was getting kind of, it was there constantly and then it would go away for a little while and then it would come back. And mm-hmm. then I went to the doctor like probably 10, 15 times. And they were giving me anti-inflammatories to see if whatever was there would go down pain wasn't going away and then I was sent for an ultrasound fast forward to January this year um, sent for an ultrasound on the gland in my throat in my neck and she'd done the ultrasound and she said she couldn't see anything so she'd done a full throat under, uh, ultrasound yeah. and she found that there was something on the thyroid she said oh have you ever had trouble with your thyroid and I said yeah I said I'm on L-troxin probably 17 years or just more, a bit more and she said well she said there's something there on your thyroid and she said it's a little nodule and she said, I don't think it's anything to worry about. She said, we need to get it checked. Did you think it was probably thyroiditis, which is quite common in women, I suppose? You know, I mean, um, I know a lot of women end up having a thyroid removed at some point in their life. Yeah, I don't actually know because she kind of, to me, the way she kind of paused and then she kind of said, uh, well, I think okay. we need to get it checked. So then that was fine. Done the ultrasound. I got the report, but the report I get, it comes straight to my phone like that day and then the doctor's report comes in probably 12, 14 days later. They have like a write-up and it comes straight onto my phone, yeah. which is a great system. Yeah. So yeah. the sister, the growth was 1.5 or 1.2, I think, at the time. Um, then I had to go back in and out to the doctor a few times because it was getting worse. Like I can feel it there when I'm swallowing, like even drinking water or just swallowing. Just And what is it? Just kind of feels day. like something caught in your throat all the time, does it? Yeah, it feels like there's something pressing, like yeah. somebody had their finger on your throat or something like that. Like, oh, okay, um, okay. So then I was going to the doctor a few times since January, 
and I went to the doctor last week and she said, look, we need to get it checked. She said, because if there's nothing, they haven't done anything with it since January, she said, we need to get them to recheck it just in case. Yeah. So I'm back in on Monday, they've done a second ultrasound and she, the ultrasound doctor, she said, oh, can you remember how big it was the last time? And I said, I think it was like 1.5 or something. She said, yeah, but she said it's getting bigger. So she said, we need to get the biopsy done. Okay, so, so your, your concern was that it's growing quite rapidly or her concern was in a short space of time it had grown a good bit. Yeah, because like I can feel it like more now than I could before. Absolutely, So I knew yeah. myself that it's either getting bigger or, you know. So then that was Monday, I had the ultrasound and then yesterday I called my own doctor just to see if they had the blood results and stuff from a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And I was told just by the receptionist just to phone the hospital make sure that they had got the referral letter in January. This is the University, sure th- this is the university Hospital yes. in Galway. Yeah. Yeah, just to make sure that they had got it, that there wasn't a mix-up somewhere along the line and I was left waiting for something that would never happen. So I called them and he was kind of like, well, you know, he said it's going to be a year at least. A year? Like, what am I supposed... Yeah, 12 months or more, he said. Oh, my. And I said, well, I said, what am I supposed to do in 12 months' time? I said, if it's grown a little bit since January... So this is 12, like let 12 me months. just clarify this. So this is 12 months just to get a biopsy to make, to, well, to see, to make sure, to find out if it's malignant or, or whatever it happens to be. So it's 12 months just to get a biopsy. 12 months just to get into a, to ENT to get an appointment for a consultation. It wasn't even the biopsy, he said. It was just 12 months waiting list to get into ENT. Oh my. So I was like, kind of, Upset, not upset, but kind of. Well, I mean, more look when you've been when you've been given news like that, I suppose, particularly the fact that your dad only passed away recently from cancer, and obviously you're concerned that maybe it may be in the family or whatever it is, and and even that that may not be the case, but it, that's in the back of your mind anyway. And when you have those very serious concerns, particularly when you're told, you know, that this lump or this growth in your throat or this nodule has got bigger, quite substantially bigger, very quickly. You know, to tell you to have to wait 12 months before somebody else is even going to look at it, that's a very difficult position to put anybody in. Yeah, I kind of, I got off the phone. I was kind of like short with him in the end. I was like, fine, thanks for that. Like, mm-hmm. okay. And then he said, when he said, Monday, he said, it's too close to when I called him. So he said, I'll call. He said, if you call me back next week, we can figure something out when the report comes through. He said, but there's definitely a 12-month waiting list. No, I suppose I suppose there is an option there to go private, but not everybody has that facility or everybody has the means to do that, as of course. Uh, and you know, most people in this country don't have private health insurance, unfortunately. Um, and the, the, basically, they tell us there's not a two tier system, but there clearly is a two tier system. If you're being told for something is, very yeah. serious, you're being told you have to wait a year to even have someone look at it. Yeah, like even if they just give me the reassurance that by looking at it, that it doesn't look like anything, mm-hmm. you know, at least give me some sort of comfort that there's nothing there to worry about but no yeah. like so the, it's only by the way since last Monday of course that you had that follow up which where you found out the nodule is getting bigger so you must be I mean apart from the pain of it and the pressure you said you're feeling when you're eating or whatever the psychological yeah. aspect of this now kicks in because now you're really concerned about it and you're not going to be able to put your mind at ease for at least 12 months yeah. And yeah, I know, I know I that. I was only explaining the other day. I remember many years ago. I, I was told I had a bit of a, a cough and a shortness of breath. Anyway, it turned out I had a chest infection at the end. But at the time, the doctor said he was concerned about something that he saw on an X-ray, and he wanted to go to get an MRI. And I, I wanted it that day because I know that feeling when you think that that you know he kind of indicated there might be a growth or something there, but thankfully yeah, there wasn't yeah. in the end. But I know that feeling when you're waiting and that apprehension. And to think that you have to wait a year to find out exactly what it is that's wrong with you or how dangerous this might be. And in the interim, as you said already, it seems to be growing. I mean, that is a shocking situation to be put in. Yeah, like even like I even said that I know there's people worse off than me, but like like there's people on that waiting list with just like a sinus infection or it could be something like glandular fevers. Like, I'm not making their problem smaller than mine. No, I'm absolutely not. No, no, no. I, I mean, everybody's problem is important. You know, I mean, everybody's problem yeah. is important. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I I don't know what to say to you. I mean, this is, and I'm sure there's many people listening right now around the country. And, of course, they are in a similar situation. You know, there are people waiting. I've heard of people waiting 12 months, two years to get an appointment yeah. for something that yeah. really, really concerns them. I mean, from, from Monday, I mean, since Monday, what has it been like for you? Your day must be awful. 
and my head is wrecked. Like I'm not sleeping well. I'm not like eating like even just eating simple dinner, like even chips or soft dinners. Like I have to drink a pint of water with it. Yeah. Because like it's a, like. As I said myself, I'm not going to think the worst because the more you freak out, the more you're... And are you freaking out? Are you freaking out? I, I'm, unfortunately, I can't put your mind at ease. I, yeah. Obviously, we can give us, you know, attention because there's many people in your situation. Now, as usual, we will contact and we try and get a, a statement, you know, from the hospital or a statement from whatever it is if you, if you want us to do that. But normally those statements will come back and say to us, unfortunately, we can't discuss information in relation to, uh, you know, an individual and they can't. But they will tell yeah. us that there is a waiting list and unfortunately that's the way it is because our health service sadly is inadequate Um, and it has been for many many years but the the problem with that inadequacy is there are people and human beings like you at the end of that inadequacy that's yes that's the thing like they don't like I know the place is busy they blame everything on COVID but like long before COVID there was waiting lists Mm -hmm. people you know like me left with no answers and then you're left sitting at home thinking what if kind of thing I know, and there's 1.2 million people waiting for appointments currently at the moment. 1.2 million people are waiting to see a doctor or waiting to see a specialist or waiting to get a referral or whatever it happens to be. Now, many of those would not be serious. They would be, you know, smaller things that wouldn't be life-changing. But in your case, I mean, this is life-changing for you because hopefully it's not serious, and I really hope so, Stephanie. But but it could be. And And again, I don't want to worry you or concern you, but you need to have your mind put at ease, you know, that it's something that can be dealt with. And, you know, over time or treatment or whatever treatment you need to get in relation to it, because you can't continue to live, you know, with this pressure on your throat or this feeling that you can't drink, eat. And on top of that, I'm more concerned about your mental health over the next 12 months. Yeah, it's just hard to know what to do, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And how is your mental health right now since you've got all this information given to you? Well... When I got to, when I made the phone call yesterday, I felt like screaming because like you have no answers, and it's like mm-hmm. like to hear twelve months, like anything could happen in twelve months. Yeah, yeah. And and of course you are worried, obviously, and and you're still obviously grieving the loss of your dad as well. On top of yeah. that, and you're obviously worried because of the reason he died himself. I mean that that is a concern. Is there anybody else in your family that have had cancer? Um, there's been a. F- couple like I don't want to say who or what no like, no there's obviously been a couple, not. yeah yeah in the last few years they have had yeah okay okay so that's obviously a concern of yours in the back of your mind that that could be what yeah. it is and and hopefully again it's not I mean hopefully it's benign and it's not you know a malignant growth or anything like that so hopefully you get good news in relation to that but to wait you know a year for good news uh, that you know it'll be just a case of removing whatever it is this polyp or whatever it happens to be or this nodule I mean, yeah. it's going to be difficult for you. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to waiting that long anyway. And and so, is there anybody else that you can ring in the interim? Is there is there any other, did he say there was any other way around this, apart from obviously going privately, which is probably unaffordable for most people, but is is there any other way of going around it? Um, I could try, like, I don't know, like going to a counsellor, local counsellor, like whatever, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. like... I don't. I just can't see how I can be waiting twelve week or twelve months for yeah. an appointment that takes a few minutes to do, kind of thing, and just give me some sort of answers. And, and see what I what I they don't. I don't think they fully understand the implications of telling news like that to people because I mean you have to get on with your day to day life, and I don't know whether you have family, you have children, you have friends, and everybody yeah, else. Two and children, you, yeah. Yeah, and you know your life has to go on. You know, and they they don't understand the implications of that kind of information to somebody and how that can have a devastating effect on their day-to-day ability just to carry on and do what they do normally. Yeah. You know, which I'm sure is difficult for you at the moment. Yeah, it's just my head is wrecked now, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you are you positive? Um, yeah, because, like, I have to be kind of, like, as I said, if I start worrying and have a meltdown, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of your... You're not making yourself any better worrying about something that you don't have an answer for, if you know what I mean. Did you sleep last night? Um, yeah. Okay. I probably had four hours, which is like a miracle in itself. Right. Okay, well, you need to try and get more than four hours, <laughs> Stephanie. You don't want to put yourself into worse health either. But look, yeah. I'm my fingers are crossed for you. And I think everybody listening today, their fingers are crossed for you too. And hopefully it's something that can be treated and hopefully it's something that can be removed and that it's benign. I hope I'm getting that the right way around, benign, not malignant. Um, and unfortunately for you, 
Um, I don't think the system is going to get any better. And I've heard of worse situations than yours, by the way, if that makes you feel yeah. any better, where people are in a very difficult situation. It could be waiting two years. You know, people looking for, say, heart bypass, where they're on the verge of having another heart attack and they're waiting two years for a heart bypass. You know, so yeah, there, there are... Uh, it is crazy and it's wrong because, and as I said already, if you have private health insurance, <clears throat> you know, you'd be seen in two weeks' time. But, yeah, but like the thing with the health insurance either, like if I signed up for it tomorrow, they're, they're going to know there's something on the oh, no, there yeah. already. No, well, that's, so that's it. You yeah. Know. No, no, by getting it tomorrow was no point. Unfortunately, you would have had to have it six months before they would deal with something, that you, a condition that you already have. So yeah. that, that's kind of, unfortunately, a pointless exercise now. But the, the point is, not everybody can afford private health insurance. You know, I mean, it's it's an expense for a lot of people that they just can't afford. Yeah. And the majority of people in this country don't have private health insurance. But we shouldn't have a system that's two-tier, that treats people differently based on how much money they have. Yeah, that's true. And unfortunately, that's the way we're doing it. But listen, I wish you well, Stephanie. I really, really do. And I, it's easy for me to say, try not to worry about it. I was in your situation once many years ago and I worried myself sick for about 24 hours <laughs> until I got yeah. a scan and got some good news. And hopefully you'll get the same good news as well, although it might take you a little bit longer. And I do apologize for that. Like, I'm not apologizing on behalf of the state. Unfortunately, I can't. But certainly I apologize to you because I have empathy for the situation that you find yourself in. And look, I'm, I'm going to put it out there to people as well. And I'm sure there are many people in your situation. And they can contact us here at 087 And I'm sure there are people that are better off than yourself and worse off than yourself as well, Stephanie. Yeah, I understand that too. Well, look, you take care yeah. of yourself and, and try, and try to put compartmentalise it for the moment and just make keep making phone calls. I find if you badger people and keep making phone calls that somebody eventually will take a little bit of pity on you and move you up the list a little bit. Yeah, okay. Thank All you right. very much. All right, Stephanie, thank listen, you. thank you very much take indeed care. and I appreciate your call. Thank you. Well, I'm sure Bye-bye. there are many people, by the way, listening today, who are in a similar situation. And I'd love to hear from you as well, by the way. I'm, uh, God love poor Stephanie. I mean, that's a terrible situation to be in, to be sitting there waiting, I suppose, for that news that you might get an appointment in 12 months' time. I mean, that's unacceptable, isn't it? And I mentioned, too, about private health insurance, and we shouldn't have a two-tier system. Unfortunately, we do have a two-tier system. And I know people are saying that you don't always get seen that quick with private health insurance, but you get seen a lot ahead of a lot quicker than you would if you go to the public system. That's just a fact of life, isn't it? Um, sadly, and it shouldn't be a fact of life. Uh, I want to know how you fared off. Maybe you're in a similar situation. You've been diagnosed with something reasonably serious and you've been told you might have to wait 12 months, two years in some cases. I've heard of even people being, you know, uh, say something that would be life-changing, like a knee operation or a hip operation or whatever it happens to be, three years. And, And this is the truth. And also, can I mention as well that it's quite shocking in relation to even A&E, for example, that if you want to go to A&E at the moment, uh, currently, you know, there are a lot of people just literally walking out of A&E. Over 75,000 people leave A&E every single year without even being treated. In other words, they walk in and the waiting list is so long in A&E that they can be there 20, or 30, 20, 30 hours and they walk out the door. And nurses and doctors will say, well, something I can do about it, really. You're better off. Yeah, if you want to go home, go home. That includes at least 3,400 cases involving sick or injured children. Now, I hate to do the comparison and because I've been to A&E in the Ulster Hospital many times, when I say many times, a few times over the last few years, because I spend most of my time up there, you're generally in and out within an hour. And I'm, su- I'm assuming by times they have their long waiting lists too, you know, where it might be two or three hours. But you won't be there 20 hours. You certainly won't be lying on a trolley in a, in a hallway for 20 hours. So what are we doing that's so incredibly wrong? We have a small population of 5 million people If you can get seen by a consultant privately within a short space of time, why can't we do that publicly? I just don't understand. Is it that we only care about people who have money? Is that the way it works? Because you can be sure if, you know, Stephen Donnelly or Leo Varadkar or Micheál Martin, you know, had a lump of their throat. And I, I don't wish that upon anybody, of course, or something like that that had to be seen to. They wouldn't be waiting a year because they probably have private health insurance. And I always advise people if you can afford it to get private health insurance because that's unfortunately the world we live in and that's the country we live in. It's getting closer and closer to America all the time. Um, where you, if you rely on the public system, you're waiting a long time, so long that you could probably die. And I mentioned in relation, I was talking to Stephanie just briefly there about somebody I knew who was on a waiting list for a bypass. And it was around the same time as my father got a bypass. My father had private health insurance with the VHI many, many years ago and he had a heart attack outside Crow Park at a match. And he was brought in 
and he was told he needs a quadruple bypass. He had the quadruple bypass within six weeks. His friend had a heart attack in and around the same time, didn't have private health insurance, was told he'd have to wait 18 months. Within that 18-month period, he had another heart attack and died. So the answer was, if he had private health insurance, he would have survived. So when they say money doesn't buy your health, sadly in this country, it does. Because you can get a diagnosis and you can get treatment probably quicker, depending on which insurance you have. And that's a sad reflection on our society. And it's also a sad reflection on the way we run the health service in this country, that people can't get seen to in a reasonable amount of time on a public system. You can have private health insurance, provided you have a decent public health insu- or public health system. But we don't. We fail miserably. The HSE is a disaster. And the man in charge is Paul Reid. And he's paid a ridiculous amount of your taxpayers' money every single year. And the system is a mess. So what do you do about it? You need to fix it. And the number is 087-188-0008. Maybe you're in that situation. I'd like to hear from you. Text or WhatsApp us now. 087-188-0008. I know I have a list of calls to get to now. Quite shocking and quite disturbing, actually, when you hear some of the stories that people are texting and WhatsApping in in relation to how long they waited, not just for an appointment, but for how long they waited in A&E. And somebody said, if you're waiting 20 hours in A&E, it's obviously not an emergency. That's a stupid statement, isn't it, really, when you think about it? I don't even know why you sent that in. Uh, because if you are waiting 20, 20 hours in A&E, it could be an emergency. You don't know. That's the reason you're in A&E in the first place. Now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of time wasters in A&E. And that's also a problem. And the problem there is because people can't get to see their GPs. Anyway, the number is 087-188-008. Let me go to Elaine. Elaine, you're in Ireland's Classic Kids. How are you doing, Elaine? Hi, Niall. How are you? How's things? Good. Well, you heard Stephanie before the break there. She's been diagnosed with something. They don't actually know really what it is yet. Um, yeah. But it could be cancerous, and I hope it's not for her sake. But she's to wait 12 months before someone will even talk to her about it again. And you know what? That is not... That's, that, that issue is not unheard of. Yeah. It's not the first time. Like, I've, I've a couple of different scenarios that I can give you from okay, family let, life. Let's talk about your husband first. Yeah. And at the start of the pandemic, what, what happened to him? So, he was having a couple of symptoms. So, when he was using the bathroom, he was bleeding. Okay, that's um, not good. That's not good, no. Stomach issues. Now, this was a continuous thing. The bleeding was a continuous thing. It wasn't a once-off. Yeah. Um, severe constipation or severe, what he thought was diarrhea, which turns out to be overflow. Okay. Um, he was he was in a cruel state, bent over in pain. My husband, by nature, is a size thirty two waist, um, quite a thin man, tall man. Yeah. And his stomach has swollen so much he go he varies between a thirty six to a thirty eight waist from okay. bloating. Right. Okay. So there's obviously there was an issue yeah. with the colon there. Yes. There is yeah. an issue. So one of his parents has Crohn's disease. A couple of other relatives have colitis. Both of them have very, very similar signs and symptoms. So he went and had a colonoscopy done, I think it was about a week after the pandemic started, maybe two weeks. And did it take you long to get the appointment for the it colonoscopy? It did. It took, geez, I think it was about 10, 12 months. Wow. Okay. Um, so because at that, at that point, you, d- you didn't know what it was. I mean, don't get me wrong. It could have been something a lot more serious. I mean, yeah. I know Crohn's is extremely serious, by the way, but it could be something even a lot more serious than that. You didn't yeah, know. Yeah, but we still don't even know what the issue is, and that's, yeah. that's where I'm getting to. Okay. So um, he had the colonoscopy done, and they found a couple of, um, like, lumps. Okay. Um. Basically, the, they, the, they had biopsied it and the whole lot. That was fine. Had the blood. Well, it wasn't fine. We still haven't got the results of that either. This Sent is, this is since the pan, when you say the pandemic started. So we're going I back mean to, 2020. Yeah, that's what I'm mean saying. Going back to 2020. 2020, yeah. It's two years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So a co- about two weeks later, he went for an MRI, which was referred to by the same gastroenterologist, I think that's what they're called. Yep. And... I, I won't name any names, any hospitals, and none of that. Um, I'm not. I'm not kind of into to shame them. I'm just trying to give the yeah. story out. So, okay. basically, we've been contacting them since then. Two years later, and the hack happened, and nobody has got back to us. I have called a ridiculous amount of times. Are you, are you telling me he had a colonoscopy and an MRI? I yeah. believe, by the way, that you didn't want to obviously wait, you know, a long time for the MRI. So you did get the MRI privately because we did. No, it was private, quid or whatever. in the hospital. So we paid within the same hospital. They had all the referrals from this. How much is an MRI now? Is it 180 quid? Is it or 200 or something? I think it was 
70 or 280 okay, okay. in and around that region but it was just a small portion it was, it was just yeah you just wanted to get it done yeah yeah of course so uh, but we're two years later two you still haven't later. had the results absolutely we've gone to gps i have contacted the consultant the consultant secretary a ridiculous amount of times so i have it written down how many phone calls I've made, times, dates, the whole lot, what the message entails, contact details, everything. Absolutely everything. I, I assume, I've emailed because I've had times. a CT scan, I've had an MRI scan in the past, in the last 10 yeah. or 15 years. And normally it's a case of when you have the scan, the results are sent over, you know, somebody of a professional level looks at the yeah. scan and decides if he thinks there's something wrong, that result is then sent to your own GP. It wasn't even sent to the GP. That's the funny thing about it. The GP has no rec- has no record of it. So, so two years later, no results, and your husband no is still. I'm assuming your husband's still in pain. He's in horrific pain. Um, like he's in an awful state. He went into another department, um, because he's been referred by the by his own GP for severe psoriasis. And when I say severe, I mean there's not a piece of his skin that is not covered. Um, he's literally uh, mm-hmm. scabbed. That means, and this may all be connected, by the way. It yeah. is all yeah, connected. Of course, so, yeah. so the likes of Crohn's and colitis and psoriasis, believe it or not, is an intestinal issue. It all stems from intestinal issues. Yeah. So basically, the, his consultant from dermatology has contacted over to the, the first consultant asking, now we are waiting three weeks so far. I checked in with the dermatologist secretary yesterday. And she has yet to receive anything back from this consultant or his secretary. Two years. So if we, if we as ordinary people and patients cannot retrieve this information or the consultants can't receive this information, what hope have we got? <sighs> That's how poorly... I'm, I'm, I mean, whatever about getting the appointments, look, okay, it took you 10 months to get the yeah. appointment. That shocks me alone. That's 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 a yeah. bad system in itself. Yeah. But then when you get the appointment, you would expect to get the results back then because you think you've been through the worst of it, getting the appointment. Yeah. You'd expect to get the, the results back in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, like a couple of weeks. Maybe, yeah, like but, well, max when, six weeks if you're But Particularly if somebody's for, in pain and it's serious yeah. and something that can be tackled. You yeah. would imagine, yeah, well, whatever, four weeks, five weeks at the very most. Yeah. But two years. Two years. You can't I, blame I, the you, pandemic on that. Absolutely. And you'd think by what I'm saying is a lie. And I swear to God, it's, it's oh, genuinely not, not. I would never accuse you of lying. No, Elaine. it's genuinely. It, Nothing it surprises so me in this country. Yeah, I know. It sounds so unbelievable. You'd think it was a lie and it was made up. It's genuinely not. It's it's ridiculous. My own father um, is diabetic. Well, was I diabetic? Um we were contacting diabetes departments in the same hospital and we basically asked for him to be seen. He was diagnosed with diabetes 14 how, how years old ago. Is he? How old is he? Uh, well, he was 62 when he died. Oh, I'm, oh, um, I'm sorry, he passed away. I'm so he sorry, Elaine. passed away, yeah. Um, we begged, and I mean begged, all throughout the pandemic, he was losing ridiculous amounts of weight. My father was a six-foot man. He was a size 38 waist. 36 to 38 ways to hold adult life as long as I remember him and we were back in the diabetes clinic to see him because basically the weight loss there was a couple of other issues his sugars was going extremely extremely high they was they put they said that he was type 2 but put him on insulin the insulin wasn't working it was diet controlled like everything we done we we cook from scratch like we're we're quite old school we cook from scratch yeah so, like, it was well diet controlled. Like, we checked all the sugar contents, everything. There was absolutely zero reason why he was having high pores. And I mean high pores to the point where he was 18. Sugar, his sugar rate was 18 when it's supposed to be between four and six on an average person. We brought him to his diabetes nurse in the local community. She actually sent us immediately over to this hospital to be seen. They kept him in. They were trying to say, oh, there's nothing wrong. We're going to send him home. Only my mother kicked up. I was like, no, something is wrong with my husband. Check his pancreas. And only after she'd done that and had absolute desolation with one of the consultants, they done scans and bloods. And well, they had already done bloods, but they had done more extensive bloods. It turns out my father has pancreatic cancer oh, and, no. died, and died within eight weeks. Oh, I'm so sorry, Elaine. I'm so sorry. Um, 
So that's the and, and, and your the point negative. is that if they had to listen to you from the start, that no, maybe you'd have got sooner. Yeah, okay. Like they wouldn't be able to save them. I'm not no, going to lie. I understand right? that. They wouldn't. But in the latter months, in the latter weeks, when he was dying, he was in horrific pain that did not need to happen. And that's my point. Yeah, yeah. Like this all could have been controlled, but it wasn't. So, like it, it, the whole HSE needs a massive over overhaul. I have other issues with my children. Both of my children have have autism. I actually got a TD in my local area to speak about one of my children in front of Paul Reid about maybe six eight weeks ago. And he was like, oh, well, we can't actually speak about specific cases because I haven't got the answers we, That's the answers we get all the time when we send them yeah. an email. Yeah. And my daughter is eight. She's diagnosed a number of years. I actually had to fight for an assessment to me. Wait and you see why. Wait and I tell you why I had to fight for it. When she was three, she had the hand dexterity to tie her shoelaces. They said she wasn't autistic. Okay. <laughs> that's what we're up against. That's yeah. air health. So, and you know what? There's nobody better than a mother, a daughter, a brother, or a sister, or somebody related to the person to know because that there's something wrong. Because they see what they're looking at. Yeah. Like, if, if, like say, for, for instance, if you were to look at your wife or your partner or whoever, and you see them every day, and you notice a change, you're the best person Absolutely. to say, actually, there's I something wrong. this change. Please explore it. See what's going on. However, nurses, doctors, now I'm not saying about all of them, from my experience, we weren't listening to we're not being listened to. And, and now... And, that's, and that is an issue. Paying the price. You are absolutely right. A lot of the time, you know, the people who love somebody or who are used to them and see them every single day and, what, and, and you can see them losing weight, etc. Or you can see their change in their behaviour, the change in their, in their physicality. Yeah. You know best. And, you know, doctors and nurses should listen. And, and, and to be fair to doctors and nurses, look, you know, it's not an easy job. It's a thankless job sometimes. No, it's absolutely not. And I have to say... Yeah. We have dealt with absolutely wonderful, and I mean wonderful doctors but you know, and nurses. You know what it is? Do you know what it is, Elaine? I think a lot of doctors and nurses, they're under huge amounts of pressure to free up beds, which is, they shouldn't be under that pressure. They're under huge amount of pressure not to be sending people to x-rays, huge amount of pressure not to be sending people to MRIs, huge amount of pressure not to be sending people yeah. to blood tests because of such a backlog and the problems that you're having in relation to your husband currently. And I'm really sorry about your dad, by the way. And I'm really sorry about Thank the problems you. that you're having in relation to your child as well. But in relation to your husband, the fact that you have to wait two years, two years. for a yeah. consultant to send the results to your own GP. And by the way, that's not the end of the trail because when you get the results, you then have to get an appointment to get him some sort of treatment. So We have actually decided now at this point that as soon as we get those results, we will get those results because I will make make it my mission to receive those results and I'm, we're going to go private at this point I'll be honest I take loans out rather than wait on air public health but you, sh- but you shouldn't have to do that I know we shouldn't have to but unfortunately after being left for two years this is what we're up against and I cannot lose my husband after losing my father I know I know <laughs> and um, that's just it and I hope you don't lose your husband Elaine and how is how is he today He's he's actually good. Today is a good day. Um, okay. He's actually good. Now, he is very swollen. I was looking at him this morning. He's very bloated, very swollen. And is he, he, is he out of worker at the moment or is he... No, he's actually in work. He's one of those people I'd literally crawl to work. Okay. Like he's, okay. he's, we're already old school. We'd crawl to work. Um, there has been a couple of days where he hasn't been in the position to go to work, but by and large, he will crawl to work. Well, listen, Elaine, unfortunately, I have to go into a break, but you look after your husband. And I know you will because you sound like yeah. you're, a, you're definitely a keeper. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and look, at, and by the way, look after yourself because I know this has taken a huge toll on you and your mental health as well. Yeah, it is. I'm not going to lie. I am very worried about him um, and, and my children. Both my children are, are yeah. autistic. And yeah. like it is, it's hard. I'm not going to lie. But we, we have to move on and we have to, to keep going for our families. That's just how it is. Well, we didn't have angels like you in this country. I don't know how we'd all survive, to be honest with you. <laughs> Irish mammies are the best in the world. <laughs> Elaine, I learned from a young mammy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look, Elaine, look after your husband. And I really hope you get that sorted out. But in the interim, anyway, we are going to continue talking about this today. And thank you very much, Elaine, for sharing your story with us. But we are talking about how shameful that is. It really is shameful that you're waiting two years to get results. I was just talking to Ashley there during the break and you know one of the reasons that we have a huge problem in A&E in this country is because people can't get to their doctors. You ring your doctor, you can't get an appointment for days. People tend to then go to A&E with silly stuff. In relation to what one of our texts said earlier, 
true to a certain extent. But a lot of people that go to A&E could end up with a very serious problem. It'll only get diagnosed once they get through A&E after 20 hours. And this is why the, the English system or the British system is much better than the Irish system. Because they have free GP care and they have more GPs than we have, people get to see their GP. You can call your GP and be diagnosed over the phone if it's something small, for example, like a sore throat. And you can get your prescription sent straight to your local boots and pick it up that day. And that's why the system operates better and it's not blocked up with people time-wasting in A&E. And the real cases get to get seen in A&E and triage property. That's why it's a much more efficient system. We're a disaster in this country. Disaster. Here's some of your messages on WhatsApp. Hi, Niall. Um, with regards to your call on here that at the moment, waiting for results with uh, over two years, she should use the GDPR process with the HSC and demand those results. They have to give them within six months by law. I hope this helps her out. Bye. Okay, well, there's a bit of advice for Elaine there using the GDPR system. In other words, they have information belong to you and under the Freedom of Information, you're entitled to any information a hospital or any organisation run by the state has on you at any time. Fair play to you, Niall. Uh, just listening to your conversation about the two-tier system and, you know, I do think that more people and more media outlets out there need to highlight this you know there is people really suffering out there because of this high waiting lists people needing uh, hip and knee replacements and um, you know our health system is built on profit rather than public interest it's it's i believe that it stinks and it's rotten to the core uh full of full of you know I wouldn't. I don't like to say gangsters, but uh, you know what I mean. It's just absolutely. I I believe that our our health system. It's going to be the last big scandal in Ireland. Is our health system and the two tier system that we currently have. It's an absolute disgrace. You probably won't read let let this out on air. I don't really care, but I'm livid with the way our our system is run and you know the people who benefit out of the privatization and everything else and also with the national maternity hospital you know going to a private company where is slanger care where where's the the force behind that from our our tds and our ministers and everything else it's an absolute disgrace and i don't mind saying that people like that caller you had on air they're the real people who suffer and and she's a young mother as well it's a disgrace that's all i'm saying okay you're absolutely right it is a disgrace and we did play your message on the air and i agree with a lot of what you're saying by the way and some of it i'm not saying it's all for profit because the public health care system is not meant to be for profit but certainly the private health care system is and that's why people end up having to go to it because they can't get public good public health care in a small country of five million people and by the way in relation to the people that work in it 90% of the people that work in it are hard-working, decent people, doctors, nurses, etc., etc. There are a lot of wasters working in it too, by the way, who work in admin, and a lot of people walking around. I call them the folder holders. People who are overpaid for doing nothing. And, and we could make it a lot more f- efficient if we had a good person running it. Bottom line is, that all comes down to the CEO of the HSE, and that's Paul Reid. He earns, as I said already, 430000 probably plus expenses as well, per year. That's your taxpayer's money. Is he doing a good job? You decide. I'm just looking at a statement here, by the way, from the HSE chief, Paul Reid. And he says, in one year, we will not address real serious legacy issues in terms of our waiting lists. He also said we had a short term action plan from September to December when we were coming out of one wave of COVID. We did see a 5% reduction in the waiting list. Now, Paul, hold on a second here. Before COVID came along, we had waiting lists. COVID just made it worse. Anyway, the current plan, he said, sets out to seek what would be the biggest ever reduction of 18%. And we have been uh, under challenge in the force for months. Uh, but it will set out a very significantly st- a significant start to a progress uh, this year. Well, I don't believe him. I mean, if they haven't been able to do it in the last 25 years. I don't know how they're going to do it now, just straight after COVID. And look, it's a disaster. He's the man responsible. Ultimately, he is the CEO of the HSE. I could fill five hours today if I wanted to with the amount of texts, WhatsApps and people wanting to get on the air to talk about how long they've been waiting for life-changing surgery or life-saving in some cases as we spoke to Elaine earlier on where her husband waiting two years to get results um, of a colonoscopy and an MRI. That's incredible. Uh, I want to go to Anne. Anne, you're in Ireland's Classic Kids. How are you doing, Anne? Hi, Niall. How are you? Now, Anne, you're a nurse. Yeah. 
And I don't know whether you work as a contractor in a hospital setting or in a GP's office, but that's your own business, where you work. I uh, work in a busy university hospital. Okay. And you've, yeah. you've been listening to people today, you know, talking. You, you heard the, our first caller, Stephanie, who had been diagnosed um, with a growth in her throat, which is getting bigger very quickly. and been told she's going to have to wait 12 months to see a consultant. You heard Elaine waiting two years to get results of a, a colonoscopy for her husband who's in great pain. I mean, when you listen to that, how does it make you feel? Listening to it, like I'm not shocked myself. I literally had to push for a whole year for colonoscopy. And I work with doctors I see every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, that's not what I've come on for. I've come on for people really need to stand up. I sometimes, after 12-hour shifts, would come out and sit in my car. I'm actually getting emotional now. And cry. And what our elderly are being put through in our A&E's. It is just... I'm ashamed to even work in the hospital I work in. It is just terrific. It's so down to management. There is managers and managers and managers of supervisors, yet none of them are supervising staff. Um, we're under immense pressure to keep people moving, moving. Our basic patient care is completely and utterly gone. There's no patient care from when I started over 20 years ago. It's just terrific. And in comparison to when you started 20 years ago, now it would have been the HSC 20 years ago, it had moved from being the regional hospitals to, to the HSC. Yeah. What, what was different then to what's happening now? Obviously the population has got a little bit bigger as well. That's, there's an extra million people. But what's, what's different now? It has, it's become a business. It is business now. It's down to money. I know for 100% there are certain tests that you won't get unless you're a private patient. And I, I obviously can't say what tests they are, but there is no publications will get them. Because they cost um, too much? Uh, well, no, because the consultants want to use the slots for private patients. And the hospital are aware of this because they're making money out of it as well. From the con- They're making I, money from the consultants for the yeah, use of the theatres, yeah. 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 I've spoken to TDs about it, and, oh, yeah, it's terrible, yeah, we're going to raise this. Well, like, if you're going to raise, why are we still in this predicament? Why are we still here? And do you believe, as a nurse working within a hospital setting, do you believe that because of the resources or the lack of resources that you have as a nurse and the lack of resources or the lack of management, do you believe that people's lives are in danger unnecessarily? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. As I said in my text at this stage in my life, for my own mental health, I don't think I can keep working in, in it because it just upsets me too much. It is just soul destroying. So you've been in situations where you've seen people deteriorate, let's for a better word, and I, I don't want to use the word die, but certainly, you know, that can happen too, but deteriorate, yeah. and you know that there's a better way of dealing yeah. with it, but you don't have the resources, you but don't no, have the power. You always had, like, you'd know your patients and you'd listen to your patients and you get so much information by listening to them. Yes, of you course. Know, especially the elderly, like, you just let them ramble on and they, you get so much more out of them. And sometimes their physical illness could be something down that's happening at home, you know, in these, these little things. But yeah. Because it's so busy now and because you're under so much pressure to keep things moving, you don't have that anymore. So you don't have that kind of one-to-one interaction you with the patients? You don't have that anymore. It's like, it's, it's paperwork. It's, you've one manager coming down on top of you who will say, oh, it's my manager above me. As you said, the clipboard people. They're the, the just, fo- I call them the folder holders, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I just can't. Like, and I, I see them get, I see people getting promotions and I'm looking going, I don't know even know where you got the qualification to be promoted. So in other words, there's people wandering around the hospital holding folders that do very little. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. In, in fairness, in some cases, probably make matters worse. And th- they get paid probably more than you do. Oh, and, and you're the one on the front line saving lives. Time. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I, I get paid to go to work. It's my job. You know, I, I've no problem with that. My problem is 
it's just not fulfilling anymore. And like, if you go into that profession, you should feel that you've made a difference. But but the thing about the nursing profession, you're not going into it to be rich. So it it is it is a vocation. It's a job you go into because you care about people. And yeah. that, that that's why you do it, because you care. And it's very difficult to be in a position where you care and you care about people and you're being told essentially not to care. Yeah, yeah, and you've got this of, oh, that's not my job, this is your job, that you know, and when I first started, there was none of that. Like, you know, and that is down to managers. There's just way too many managers. Like, and there's a meeting for a meeting and that you see politically correct in what way you come across with things and it's just disheartening. It's disgraceful. And so, so in your view, the answer is management is the problem. Money is not the issue per se, the money that's being provided by the no. government. But what is the issue as far as you're concerned is that consultants get more money and make more money from private operations and private patients than they do from public patients. I'm blaming the managers of hospitals, your CEOs of hospitals. Well, ultimately, that has to come down to the CEO of the HSE itself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And how how they can sit there and justify the horrors that are going on is just beyond me. It's tragic when you think about it. We're such a small country. And when I say a small country, five million people, it's not a lot of people. And yet across the water, we can see a system which is, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not a perfect system either. But you don't see what's going on here happening over there. Yeah, and like COVID has played a massive part. And I do feel our GPs have taken it completely back. Like they're just literally, like I know my own personal GP was refusing to see my elderly mother for which we knew was a chest infection and wanted her to go into it to the A&E, only that I kicked up and said that if I brought her into A&E, I would be stating that he refused to see her. Which when then, the day later, he saw her. Well, we have a serious lack of GPs in this country. And then apart from anything else, you know, we have a serious problem whereby people can't get to see a GP. Hence, we have people ending up in A&E, you know, with a cough or a cold, which they shouldn't be in A&E. They should be there with a local GP. Or even, as I said already, the system they use in Northern Ireland or the UK, where you can ring your GP at half eight in the morning if it's something as simple as a sore throat or a cough or a cold, and they can diagnose you literally over the phone and prescribe an antibiotic that you can get pick up in your local boots ten minutes later. And that's the kind of system we should operate. Save people going to A&E and sitting there for 20 hours when, when the real emergencies really to be dealt with. Yeah, and we have a lot of elderly now that obviously have been, and a lot of sick people that have been neglected during COVID that are presenting now and they're so sick that they are taking up a bed in the hospital for weeks and weeks because they are so sick now. And do you believe, and do you believe Paul Reid when he says he's going to, he's tackling this problem? No. No, no. As I said, Niall... Well, he's blaming COVID, but but I, you know, with, with respect to... Obviously, COVID had a huge impact on waiting lists, um, and that should be easy enough to tackle because we just work a little bit harder to tackle that. But we had problems before COVID, didn't we? Oh, massive problems. Especially in the hospital, in the hospital I work with. Like, we had massive problems before COVID even came. When COVID came, there was money literally falling from the ceiling. And, like, now it's... I, I just, I'm baffled by it. And as I said, I'm totally and utterly, I'm ashamed of my profession. Ashamed that we can't give the care that we should be given. And especially to our vulnerable people that have, especially the elderly that have worked all their lives in this country and to see them trun in a trolley for 20 and 30 hours. Sorry, it's, it's just, it's so sad. It is, it is. And I, I always I always think back to that story. Now, I know it's about four years ago now. Um, at the time, it was around the time Leo Varadka was asking nurses not to take time off at Christmas. Do you remember that? About 2018. And there was a story we covered on the show. And it was an elderly woman. I think she was in her 80s or 90s. And she was left for 48 hours sitting on a chair in A&E. And she had actually, she had actually peed herself. So she was sitting in her own urine. And it was what, a, and there was a picture in the paper of her, and I go, "How do we allow that to happen?" And that is happening every single day now, and worse, every single day that is happening. It's happening. It's to the extent that there was one elderly gentleman who had been discharged by a doctor 
and but obviously the information hadn't got to this poor man and he was there for 20, 12 hours until actually somebody that was giving out teeth asked him was he okay and he said he was wet and just because she was a nice person she went in and checked and that poor man they forgot to bring his wife to come and collect him. So he sat there for 12 hours needlessly? He sat there for 12 hours for no reason and just because he was a quiet man and he didn't want to disturb people and and this is the system we have. And, and no, nobody rang his next of kin to say, listen, you can come and collect him. No. Because no. at the moment, of course, you're not allowed to have any visitors in, which is because of COVID. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And by the way, in relation to that too, I was in a situation going back a few weeks ago where I had to bring somebody up because their elderly mother had been in a fire and she was in A&E and, you know, a woman in her 90s and nobody was allowed in to see her. And she was sitting well, there on her own. And I think every patient should... If, if, if I, any of my elderly relatives, I would demand to stay with them. And you have that right to demand. But they, under no, I was there and the security guard said, under no circumstances can I let anybody in. And, and the daughter pleaded and said, do you understand? She's in her 90s. She's alone. She's ringing me. She's terrified. And he said, sorry, I can't let you in. It's disgraceful. Mm. It's just... Well, I well, well I, you know, that I, I believe that shows... I understand the security man was just doing his job. But, that, but it does show you the lack of compassion that we have. Or yeah. that we, we've lost. I mean, you would have never seen something like that happen in the 1980s or the 1990s in this country. We no, have lost no, I, compassion completely. I see it with new staff. And I'm not given, I'm not saying, you know, or anything, but like, they don't have the compassion that we have. And I don't blame them either because they're coming into a culture of, oh no, this is the way we do things. The basic things, like, it just, it, it's like, Brushing somebody's teeth, brushing their hair, little things, it's gone. You sit down and you write three pages of crap for your higher managers to review because they'll come and do an audit and you won't, you'll fail the audit so you have to have all this paperwork done. Stuff that you believe is absolutely unnecessary because you've already explained it to three people. Exactly, exactly. Like how, like, you know, everything is, I, I guess everything has to be documented. Oh, absolutely. Guess, but, you've already, but you've already documented it. It's yeah. already on their chart. You've already explained yeah. it to probably a consultant or whatever it happens to be. But you have to write it all again for somebody else to do an audit on it. Well, you've got, because you've got the higher nurses to come down that we do an audit to see how your paperwork is. An audit to make sure that you pass, that your paperwork is up to date. Really, is that, is, is that our priority now? Because for me, it's not. I, basic patient care is my priority. And so it should be. And that's, so it should be. And you know, it's when I listen to the calls today, and I, I listened to Stephanie at the start of the show, and I, I listened to Lane and, and how upset she was over her husband, etc., etc., not being able to get results. And then I listened to you, who's a nurse. And I did say on many occasions, most of the doctors and nurses do a sterling job and they're working against, I suppose, what are bad resources. But it upsets me to hear you say that you're ashamed of the health service that we that you actually work in. And, and that's really upsetting. I'm so ashamed. So you have no idea. And loads of my colleagues, I, I, I know colleagues that have left to go and working in shop because they can't do it anymore. It's so destroying now. Well, we'll just stay there just for a second, Anna, if you can, because Bernie, you're an Ireland's classic kid. How are you doing, Bernie? I'm fine, Ash. How are you today? I know. Yeah, you've been listening to I'm Anne. really, I'm really, really so upset with the way the HSC has gone and the service. I mean, I was started in 1976. I was 17 years of age. I did my three months and I went out onto the boards. I was so happy and proud to be a nurse. And I would not leave anybody. The way they're leaving them now, it's breaking my heart to listen to all the stories today. And you, you left for that reason? I left in 2012. I couldn't take any more of the rubbish and bullology that went on. I, I mean, we did our best as nurses. They came to us and said, we're thinking of improving the service. Can you provide us with ideas? And we did. The nurses got together and we said, right, okay, do you know what? If we had a pre-assessment where people could come in and get assessed and they shortened their time waiting and we'd have them all done and dusted and all the forms would be filled out and everything would be done. So when they turn up on the day, they'd have their surgery, they'd get their pain relief and be out the door. This was one, one, one side thing, I can tell you. And no, no, they came up with a form. So a one-page form was fine. You signed it, you, per, person, were you fasting? Have you any teeth? Do you take medication? So we did that. 
and you know we signed it and they signed it and everybody was happy and the families didn't come back in two hours and we'd have your your dad and mum ready they'll have their surgery done and hopefully if they're okay we let them go home in three hours no the HSE decided they would have a seven page form they moved up to a 24 page form in case the person fell off the chair or fell in the bathroom or you know it went ridiculous so one nurse dealing with, say, five people who come in for surgery was now expected to fill out 27 pages of forms, risk of this, that, and the other. There was no nurse to help her. There was no attendant. There was no one to make tea or coffee for the person. What? It's ridiculous. And this is what, what I, and you know what breaks my heart is what Anne said there is because you're so busy filling out your 24-page form, which is completely unnecessary as far as you're concerned, Anne was saying, you know, things like just, you know, an elderly person just brushing their teeth or brushing their hair. Simple well, stuff. I mean, I mean, I would happily go in and sit with a person and feed them their lunch if they weren't able to feed themselves. Forget the, all the work in the ward. If a person needs to be fed and like they're, they're, if they're incontinent, you need to change their bed. That, I was so proud to be able to do that for somebody, to help ease their, you know, it's just hard enough to be in hospital. And then to be left at any stage at all is just not acceptable. You know, like... It's just, I mean, and people think because you're a nurse that you get through the system easier. I'm waiting over a year and a half for a, for someone to look at my back. And I have health and cover, and there's nobody in the, with specialty to deal with it. So I have to sit on the public health list like everybody else. Even though I've spent 35 years as a nurse, there's no inroads. There's no special treatment for us either. The, the union and the HS, the, you know, our, our, our INMO, they never, they don't even count us as people anymore. I mean, when, when I listen to when I listen to you who've left the profession because of all this, Anne, who I believe is on the verge of leaving it by the sounds of things, and both of you literally crying because you're so ashamed of the way the health service is run and the, the patient care that you believe you're not giving or that you haven't given to people, it upsets me greatly to hear that. No, but Niall, I mean, I, mean, I take a man here who was... Um, 85 years of age, he's doubly incontinent, and we pleaded with everyone to take him in from the village here. I knew him personally, and he's got a mental, you know, he was, he's not unwell enough, apparently, to be, he's got dementia. And finally, after five weeks of begging people to take him, he was brought in. Now he's, they just finally discovered, after two and a half years of diagnosing him as being normal, that he has dementia. And the man is not fit to live on his own. And we've been up and down trying to help them and trying to get people to to, to look and to, to assess them. Nobody was listening. And the family are driven, uh, demented, trying to get him. They knew he wasn't right. And there he was walking the streets, doubly incontinent, and everybody noticed and nobody could do anything because the hospital wouldn't do anything with him. And he sat in casualty for four days waiting to be assessed. Four and days? Four days waiting on a casualty for four days. He escaped twice. God bless him. He was great. And, and, well, you've heard Bernie Anne, she, she actually just left the profession because she was sick of it. Yeah, and I don't blame her. Is that the way, is that the way you feel too? Yeah, I don't think people in this country get it. I, I, as I said, I've spoken to TDs. I am, you know, it's not that I don't speak about it, like, and you just come out after doing your best for 12 hours and you sit in your car and you just go, Why? I'm, I'm not making a difference. It's just getting more corrupt as the days go on. As I said, it's meetings for meetings. There's managers for managers. It, it's just people really need to stand up now. We do. I mean, Anne is right. And um, like we need to stand as a, as a whole, all, everybody, because everybody has a health. Everybody needs to attend a hospital at some point in their life. I hate to be reality checking, but we all never thought we'd be all healthy. We do our best. But there's no help for if you're doing well, how your best do, how do nurses... Okay, so there's lots of nurses listening who probably agree with both of you. And, and I agree with you. And I think most people listening to you are very proud of the fact that you're willing to admit, you know, that you're ashamed of the service that you worked in, both of you. But how do you stand up or how do nurses stand up? Because when they do stand up and they go on a strike, and I, I hate to hear of a strike with nurses because... The unfortunate fact of that is we've seen it during the week with the blood test, the haematologists going on strike. We saw that the, 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 the knock-on effect of that is patient care suffers again. So it's difficult, isn't it, to make a stand? It is difficult. Know, they know we can't make a stand because they know our conscience will... You have to look after your patients. You can go on strike and, as you said, it's just the knock-on effect. And the people in the labs, they just want to strike just because they want more money. There's a bigger picture to that. 
No, and I Absolutely. and I know, but I was listening to some of the, you know, obviously the damaging effects of that of people who needed blood tests on the day. But I'm not blaming, by the way, the people who went on strike. I'm just saying that is the knock-on effect, unfortunately, a strike. So it's difficult for you without coming. I mean, look, obviously, coming on the radio is a great way to make a stand and to talk, and it gets it out there, and people hear, you know, and and it gets conversations going, and people start to take notice. But when when I hear you say make a stand, it's so difficult for nurses to make a stand. But I mean, the public wants to make a stand. Yeah. Like, I mean, the ambulance, I mean, we all, everyone who is any part of the health service at the moment, we all know, we all know, we all see it every day. We're not blind. The public health nurse on the on the road is worn out. The do- GPs are are dying on their feet. They're not able to keep it going. And like, honestly, it's, it's, it's not just nurses. It's everybody that's devoured it, it, in the service, the psychiatric service, the, ch- the people who need children looked at but there, who have... But there's one man, I mean, I'm listening to both of you, there's one man ultimately responsible for all this. But look at it, I mean, sack him then. He's not doing his job. This but, is well, not, he's paid €430,000 a year to do his job. Yeah, we shouldn't I mean, you, 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 wouldn't earn, you wouldn't earn that in 10 years. But you're not, what medical knowledge has that lad got? Let's be honest, he came from the aircom or somewhere. Do you know, he doesn't know how a hospital runs. Clearly He's not. Only been, huh? Clearly not. No, I, I, I mean, I've done the job for free. If you let me do it, but I'll be, you know, an Anne. We'll, we'll, we'll start at the bottom and work our way and get it right. Like, nobody has asked me for my opinion. I was, oh, thanks very much. Bye, out you go. I didn't even get a bye. I went out the door, not anyone say goodbye to me after 35 years. I mean, Leo, Leo Vrijka was Minister for Health for a short period of time. Uh, he, but he was a doctor, so he would have a better understanding. Sadly, he didn't yeah. get a long run at it because obviously he, went, he ran in government and obviously became the Taoiseach. So sadly, he didn't get a long run at it. But in saying that, that's, and I've always said this in relation to, why would you have a CEO of the HSE or any healthcare system, by the way, who didn't really have experience in healthcare? I, I just I, I know I don't get me wrong I know it's a business it is a business and that's the way it runs and it has to be run efficiently like a business otherwise patient care suffers as well and I don't just I get all of that but I I don't understand when we constantly are giving out about this HSE it's a disaster and yet the same person is there all the way through it yeah well I mean you know can we meet him can he can he can he meet us as, as the public can he meet the public can he meet the person on the street who is waiting for cancer I'm sure he'll tell you he has I'm sure he'll tell you he has but it has to I mean there's enough you know get him to go right well I'm going to keep the service going 24 hours a day all shoulders we we get this right I mean there's enough impetus in all of us to say right even us who are retired I'd happily go in and do something whatever it takes to get this service right and up and going I don't care anymore we need a right service it's hard when you see your husband dying and somebody telling you he's a frequent flyer because he's in and out of casualty because no one will look after him at home. Yeah. And one of your colleagues comes and says, oh, he's a bit of a frequent flyer here and he died two days later. How are you supposed to react to that? No, I get, I get, I get what you're saying, both of you. And sadly, I've run out of time. Listen, and thank you. And I appreciate both of you. I appreciate your honesty. And thank you very much indeed. And I'm sorry that you're ashamed to work in the profession. I really am because you shouldn't be. You should love the job you do. Yeah, it is. But and it's not just as that other lady said, no, it's not just nurses and doctors, porters, healthcare assistants, attendants. We're all just, especially the older staff, we've just nearly given up at this stage because you're banging your head off a wall. All right, okay. Exactly. Well said, Anne. Well said. All right, listen, thank you very much. And look, I, thank you very much. Sorry, I, I'm sorry to cut the two of you a little bit short, that I do apologise. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Anne and Bernie. Uh, Bernie, who left the profession for this very reason, that she had lost faith in it completely. Anne is on the verge of leaving it. And she look, we're looking for doctors and nurses. We're looking for people like Bernie and Anne who care about their job, who care about patients. And what, she, what Anne said, by the way, really touched me in relation to she's filling out this ridiculous form that she's already filled out two or three times, filled out a chart, talked to a consultant, but has to fill out another form so she can be audited. When actually that time should be spent talking to the patient to find out what's wrong with them and how they feel or brushing their hair. Simple little things like brushing their hair, making them feel good about themselves while they're in hospital and looking after them. That will break your heart when you listen to that. And meanwhile, and she agrees, and I've said this, I said it on television before, by the way, and I got castigated for saying it on television, that the problem with the HSE, if I was running it, I'd be getting rid of all the folder holders. The amount of admin staff who are sitting on their arses doing absolutely nothing when all the doctors and nurses and everybody else is working their arse off. There are admin staff, not all of them, by the way, some of them are hardworking people. But there's admin staff within the HSE who are sitting there all day and have nothing to do and are looking for work because there's nothing for them to do. They're walking around the hospital looking good with a folder under their arm.
I'm doing something. What are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm going down to bother Anne and Bernie and ask her loads of questions and fill out another form in case somebody falls off a chair. Loads of texts, loads of messages, by the way, come in. We got a message as well from Stephanie, who was on uh, there earlier on, and I, I just want to have a look at it here so that I can read it out to you. It says, not, I just got a letter from the UHG in the post asking me uh, my waiting list validation form to sign it and send it back to the to say that if I still wanted to meet with the doctor about my outpatient appointment, seriously, is this what I get? I'm so upset now. I was holding back this morning. I just want answers. In other words, she's only been there on Monday. She's been told she's 12 months to wait and now she's getting a, a, another form in the post, a waiting list validation form to sign and send back to say that she still wants the, the outpatient appointment. Of course she wants it. She's terrified, the poor woman. Why wouldn't she want it? God's sake. Oh. Anyway. I think we need to move on to it something a little bit lighter. I was going to do something else there, but I'm not going to because I need to... Look, I think we're all very depressed. Listen to that. It's really depressing, isn't it? Knowing that your loved ones are in a hospital where nurses are actually ashamed to be working in the hospital. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Ireland's turn.